episode 89 of Winning at Work. Hello, everybody. I am Tony Moore. And if you're curious, what does the future of the food and beverage industry look like? What type of leaders are we going to have that are going to be at the helm, setting a course, directing our largest and even our, some of our fastest growing companies into the unknown future because food and beverage is not going anywhere. It is essentially recession proof, but it's an aging workforce. We've got new young leaders that are coming up. These are the people that are going to be taking the mantle and leading us forward. And today my guest, Hiram Egbert, I think is an outstanding example of one of these future young executives that will be at the helm one day running who knows what size organization, probably quite a large organization. He's the vice president of sales and marketing at FPL Food, and they're based out of Augusta. And we're going to find out a little bit more about the, the FPL culture, uh, their mission, uh, the trends that are happening in food, particularly you know as he sees it from, this, from the space of, of beef. But we're going to really kind of move beyond that and tackle two pretty big concerns right now that are happening in the market. Uh, One is an internal problem. One's an external problem. The external problem is a labor shortage. There's no denying everywhere you go, you see a labor shortage. But according to the book of Hiram, and yes, Hiram, there it is for all to hear, the book of Hiram, we're going to discover his opinion that this started way before covid that uh, we've had some changes, some societal changes that have resulted in some different attitudes and motives of the workforce. And if companies are not adapting and addressing and actually understanding that this is actually what is driving the change, then we may never see a change in the staffing levels. So hopefully people will listen to this and understand this is how we can make the adjustments. And the second problem is that of a young leader. Young leaders come into new organizations and they're faced with they want to implement change, they need to get buy-in, but from who? Are they trying to get buy-in from the executives? Well, maybe. But more importantly, they're trying to get buy-in from the people that they're managing and the people that they're leading. And if you're a young executive, if you're in your 30s, maybe even early 40s, that's not maybe a young executive, but but you're leading an older workforce of people in their 50s and 60s, These people have so much more experience than you. How are you going to gain their respect? How are you going to get them to fall in line and help move in the direction that you know you should be moving in? Well, Hiram has, I think, kind of cracked the code in this area as well. So, And then we round out with our talent conversation. He's got another great idea of how to help a hiring leader. Guys, sit back, enjoy. This was one of the last episodes. We're getting down to the end of it as we slide into the holidays. I've had just some some fantastic guests all throughout the year. I'm really looking forward to bringing some of that content back to you because there's been just so much. I'm going to kind of maybe chunk it down into just some smaller bite sizes for y'all. I guess I'll mention it now, but for 2022, I've decided on a new format. It pains me to say this, but I've had many people say, Tony, your episodes, you know, they're, they're about an hour long and I won't start a podcast that's an hour long. And that pains me because there's so much good information in these. So I'm going to tinker with the episode length 
and I'm going to work on shortening these down. I'm going to give it a try in 2022, see if I can get them down to about 30 minutes and see if that will help improve and bring in even more listeners to this great podcast. So that's what we have to look forward to in 2022. But we're not there yet. And right now we are ready for Hiram Egbert. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Winning at Work. I'm your host, Tony Moore, and I hope you guys are enjoying all the great content that's coming out from all my food and beverage executives. I probably should have a segment just for some of the young executives. I think some of the young executives have some unique challenges that they face in the workforce, in the workplace, managing up and managing down. That could be the situation today. We're going to find out. Today, I have Hiram Egbert. He is the VP Sales and Marketing from FPL, and FPL, uh, one of the the leading uh, uh, beef producers, farmers here in the South. I think their headquarters is in Augusta, very close to us. So you've got beef and you have the masters over there in, uh, in Augusta, Hiram. Yes, we do. And thank you for letting me on the show today. I'm very excited for today's discussion. But, yes, we have beef, we have golf, <laughs> and uh, we have the medical college. That, that's about what we have going on here in Augusta. <laughs> that's that's right. The, the center of the world focuses on you guys for about two weeks, and then the rest of us in the south, we just enjoy getting our beef products from there. Now let's play, let's play genealogy today. I could end up being horribly wrong. It won't be my first or last, but there was a gentleman I placed years ago and his, now his first name was Egbert. He was Egbert Jathos and he was of German descent. I've only ever, that's the only time I've ever seen Egbert. So am I, if I'm not even on the right continent, Yes, uh, my genealogy is from there for sure. <laughs> that is the right continent. I, that's very interesting. So I, I, I nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I like it. <laughs> Close, is that, am I right? Is that yes. is that true? Yes, it's the right continent for sure. Yes, 100%. well, that's great. But again, it was his first name was Egbert, so I thought that's that was kind of. Right, it must have. They must have just wanted to kind of pass on that uh, that family name. So they, they like the last name that much that they put it as a first name. <laughs> exactly, they loved it that much. It's a very special lineage that you come from, Hiram. I would agree. All right, so before we get into, listen, I, we've got some pretty interesting topics that we're going to get into. And for those of you who who follow me on LinkedIn, you there's you see there's a lot of conversation around talent, people, hiring, you know, why companies are struggling. And I noticed Hiram on LinkedIn, uh, not just because of his position and his title and industry, but because he had some interesting thoughts kind of in this, in this space. So I invited him on. I want to talk about this. But before we kind of get into our kind of people discussion around hiring and, and talent, um, it I want to understand a little bit more about FPL. I mean, definitely tell us a little bit more about the company, the the brand, the culture, what's happening at FPL. Absolutely. No, thank you for this opportunity. You know, FPL is a powerhouse in the Southeast. We have a lot that, that we offer to our consumers and to our customers alike. So we believe that we are the only vertically integrated 
farm-to-plate capable company of our size out there. What do we mean by that? Uh, from our standpoint, we own the genetics of the animals. We feed the animals in our own feed yards in Georgia. And we also have one in Texas. And we harvest the animals in Augusta. And then we go to our further processing plant down south, also in Georgia, uh, in the Thomasville area, where we can make uh, case-ready ground beef, cut steaks, and a number of other things. So we believe that we have a fantastic sustainability story, and we believe in transparency and what we can show to to the world. Honestly, it's what, what the world wants. Um, in terms of, of our culture, right, uh, and maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself. But no, it's, it's quite all right. There's no rules here on winning at work. This is how we do it. Uh, okay, perfect. You know, on, in terms of our culture, first and foremost, the bedrock of it has to be honesty and integrity. You know, we have to be honest with ourselves and our customers. We have to have integrity. We are very energetic. We are very agile and adaptable to market trends and market movements. And most importantly, we're human. And what I mean by that is sometimes, you know, in large organizations, they get caught up in the minutiae and sometimes they lose their humanity. We know what it's like to be human. We know what it's like to, um, you know, have issues with, with daycare. We know what it's like to, you know, have illness in the family or death in the family. And because of that, we are able to help one another more fully, in my opinion. So the culture is just great. And last but not least, it's fun. We have a lot of great times uh, every time that, that we're together. So fun and human. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm glad we're talking to humans because this would be the first this would be the first alien podcast. I mean, that would really catapult winning at work to a whole nother category. Um, no, but you know, but no, seriously though, because big companies do get more focused on preserving their policies and, you know, not just taking into account just the normal things that happen to people. And I don't know if that comes out of the fact that you're farmers first. I mean, I think farmers hold kind of a unique place in America because that's really how America started. You know, you, you had to care not just for your, your, your farm and your soil, your plants, your animals. You know, you just, you have to have a heart. You've got to be tuned in to the things that are around you. So I think it's probably you're really just kind of a natural out outpouring of I, you know just being a farmer. I, I think you're spot on there. Our our owner and uh, CEO Francois Leisure from France. He uh, he comes from an agriculture background in in France, and he spent a lot of time in in other organizations, and of course, opening FPL. Um, you're spot on. He knows what it's like to grow crops. He knows what it's like to to grow animals. He knows what it's like to, to be there and work hard. And that certainly has played a role in our success as a company, but also as individuals in, in our work ethic that we have. There's, there's so many trends happening right now across the world. 
of protein and, you know, sustainability. You mentioned that you kind of touched on that a little bit. And I know for some folks in the fish world, you know, you can order a piece of fish and a little flag or something will come in the fish, little QR code on the back and you can kind of see, you know, where it came from. Is that, I mean, is that kind of just gimmicky a little bit or is that something that you see kind of happening in the beef world? Cause I don't, I don't think I really see that. I might, well, maybe I'm missing it, but I, I can't remember seeing that in, in steak. Yes, that the interesting thing about that is you haven't seen that in widespread, uh, you know, large retailers necessarily. Some of the the larger places out there, you haven't seen it a lot because it's not as common. It's not as common for an organization such as ours to own everything from the genetics all the way to the plate. And because of that, we offer a very unique capability. You know, we DNA test our animals. We, we know exactly where our animals came from. We know what their genetics are. We know, you know, the DNA, to the DNA level are where our animals are coming from and what they are. That's something that's, that's very unique that we started years ago before I ever joined FPL. Um, that part in and of itself is, is amazing. Now, you're going to see as we move forward, our society, I believe, we're going to move more towards that transparency. Consumers, whether they want to admit it or not, they are, I call them consumer activists, right? And, and COVID certainly helped this as we all went to virtual uh, learning and virtual work and everything else last year. There was a lot more time to focus on what we're purchasing, what we're what we're doing, and what our purchases actually stand for. And so, I believe that the consumers want this. It's something that the market just hasn't captured yet. It hasn't adapted to it yet. I can tell you that we do it. We provide that transparency. We provide those options. And whether you want, you know, a QR code on on your beef package that says, yes, this animal came from our farm, in, you know, in Chattel Farms, and it was fed with a 100% vegetarian diet. It was grown naturally, so there's no uh, hormones, antibiotics, any of those things. We can provide that information and that transparency, that whole supply chain link. That is really important that people can see what's not in the beef. I mean, that's just as important of kind of knowing, you know, what the heritage or the, the DNA strand is, because that's really not going to, you know, resonate with the consumer. They're not going to really understand that, but they know hormones and extra antibiotics are, are not the way to go. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm really glad. To, I'm really glad to know that, that that's happening because that's one of the big knocks against, you know, yeah. you know, is, is, that commercial stuff where you have to add all the other stuff in. It's fantastic that you guys are a clean source and that's what we all want. And you pointed it out during COVID people are paying attention to their health, maybe more than they ever did. And so they know if they watch what they put in, that's going to help them. So I think that really positions FPL in a, in a pretty strong position. Yeah. And, and Tony, if I may, from, from a sustainability standpoint, you know, in, in today's world, sustainability is one of those catch-all phrase. It's almost become a commodity word out there. And somebody's going to say we're sustainable. Well, okay, 
prove it. Prove to us that you're sustainable. And what we can do is we can show how we are responsibly stewards of the environment. And by that, I mean, we have four farms where we grow our crops. We grow crops that go into the feed for our animals at the feed yard. Those crops are fertilized by the manure that we collect at the feed yard. So you have, re, you know, you're reusing energy to grow more crops, to make crops better. And because of our unique location being in the South, we can grow three crops a year instead of the one crop, maybe two crops that you would get in the Midwest. So, you know, all those things play into what we call our environmental stewardship or sustainability. And then on top of that, we can feed the animals what people would term waste from like breweries when they're making beer, right? The, the raw materials that they have to then throw away or the used up materials they have to throw away, we can feed that and it's healthy to our to the animals and it helps them grow naturally. So we're reducing waste on the front end, but we're also utilizing the waste on the back end. Yeah, well, that sounds like sustainable to me. It sounds like you want that kind of closed ecosystem in, I guess, in, in like a layman's terms. Yeah, that's, that's the goal for sure. Yeah. Well, that's great. And, you know, like I said at the top, I, I think I really could even do a series on young executives because I think you guys, uh, even when I was coming up, you know, we, we had challenges managing up, managing down. And, you know, here you are leading uh, the sales and marketing efforts for, you know, one, well, from like the largest um, farm. What do I call it? Is it a farm? Is it a beef producer? What, what's, what do I call it? A vertically integrated beef producer, I'd call us. <laughs> okay, well, that's my new elevator pitch for this. Vertically integrated, what you just said. What I just said, perfect. What he just did, ditto. ditto what Hiram <laughs> just said. So, do you, I mean, do you think that there is a, a labor problem or is there a deeper issue? that people are just kind of failing to address and it's kind of a scapegoat just to say, Hey, we're having, we're having hiring problems. Yes. I, I think the way you, you ditto. <laughs> <laughs> the way you pose the question. Yes. Ditto. I, is there a labor issue? hundred percent. We all know that we see it across the country, right? No matter where you go, big city, small towns, everybody, is, you know, might have to close down a day because nobody showed up that day or they have to run slower and the drive throughs backed up or, you know, you name it. There's all these issues across the board. And yeah, there's a labor issue. But more than that, I believe there's a fundamental issue with the way we are attacking the problem, right? The way we're attacking the, the opportunity as an industry and, and really all industries, I feel, and maybe I'm, I'm painting with too broad a brush, but most industries are struggling with labor. And the question is, why? Why are we struggling with with labor? We're, you know, we're past the pandemic of 2020. Yeah, sure, we still have issues now, but we've, we've gotten past that, but we're still struggling now. So what is it? 
And, you know, it's hard to really put a blanket statement out there what it is. I have, I have some thoughts. I believe that, that this whole thing started way before COVID and, you know, and, and my thinking, and again, this is the book of Hiram here, so take it for what it's worth. Oh, the book of Hiram. The book of Hiram. It, it's not widely cited for a reason. Um, you know, <laughs> but it's been unearthed here today. In the, way the, word, there you go. the book of Hiram. So I believe it started with uh, when the U.S. started coming out of the Great Recession. And I believe that that our society went from a financial motivation to an experiential motivation. And so in other words, now, instead of wanting that big house and that, you know, nice car, the big boat, this, that, and the other, a bigger majority or a larger majority of people are opting for those experiences. They want to value their time. They want to be with friends. They want to be with family. They want to go out and, and do those things. So you, you made this shift or started to make this shift. And then when COVID hit, it just accelerated, you know, put, put the pedal to the metal and accelerated to where we are today. That's where I think we are. We're in a spot where, yes, money is always going to be a motivator. Yes, money is important, but it's not the only thing. Yeah, when that money, when the money motivator kind of slides to the left or kind of decreases, people can find different ways to live and to get by if they're having the experiences that they want. And I've been having this conversation with my daughter. She's 21. I've talked about her a little bit on the podcast, not a lot, but she's in um, essentially cosmetology school right now. College was definitely not her thing. She did great in in high school, so we just figured, all right, you know, she's going to have no problem in college, but she just kind of rebelled against that because she knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to go the more creative side. So fast forward, you know, she's in an apprenticeship now and she's working but there, is, there are some days off. There is some extra time. So I was telling her, look, there's a lot going on in food and beverage. Every place is looking for workers. You know, why don't you go in? And so she's gone in and she's talked to some of these places. And she's noticing that just the workers there, you know, they're not happy. And she's looking at the way that the, the guests are treating the servers and the workers. And it's a real turnoff to her. And you kind of, I hadn't really put it in, I hadn't really framed it up in my head the way you just did, but experiential is what she's looking for. And the money, unfortunately, I think because she is still living at home, I think that um, kind of (laughs) allows her to, you know, not be as money motivated. But that's kind of the person you're going after though. You're going after that you know, late teens, early twenties person, I, I think, but I mean, maybe it goes beyond that, but that's just my two cents. No, it, and it does. But, you know, even, even as, as we're evolving, as our society is evolving, more and more people are, are just going after those experiences more and more people, more than even that, they want work to be an experience and an enjoyable one. And in order for that to be the case, I think a few things need to exist within the organization. But most importantly, 
they need to believe that what they're doing is making a difference. They need to believe that. Whether that may be, you know, a small difference in the community or something as big as as combating global warming or, you know, it doesn't matter, but they got to believe that. And I think that's where sometimes we we uh, miss the mark in, in business. We miss the mark in the industry is we don't give them a, a reason to believe in what we're doing. That's you, you've yeah. absolutely hit the nail on the head. And I'll, I'll tell you, I've, um, I started doing this. I, so I finished a class on servant leadership and it was about a nine week course. And kind of throughout that, I realized that people need to connect what they're doing with an aspirational goal or maybe a transcendental goal, something that means a lot to them, but it's something that you'll never quite attain. It's kind of like what you live your life for, like a life purpose. You'll kind of always be striving for it. And when you can force someone to go through what I call the five whys, well, that's not me. That's, that's kind of a thing. It's out there. You know? So if you ask someone what's important to them and they say, well, I want to you know, buy a home for my parents. Well, okay, why? And you just kind of keep drilling down, drilling down. And finally, they'll get to this deeper inner meaning. And if you can take or if you can help the worker see what the end result of those why questions have created in them, this aspirational transcendental goal, and then you can somehow tie it to the work that they're doing, then they see coming into work is actually helping them achieve a lifelong dream. And if that sounds kind of hokey, if that sounds kind of hard to do, I'm not saying it's easy, but (laughs) I think that's kind of what you're talking about here. Yes, we have our work cut out for us. Look, we're, we're, we're not going to, to sugarcoat anything. It is, it's a difficult job. I don't think so. I think we just give them the book of Hiram. I think well, just the day they start, I think the day they start to read chapter one, read the prologue. <laughs> oh dear. My, my team's going to listen to this and think, Oh, I know, and I apologize. So <laughs> just, I'm going to apologize right now to your team for me forcing this out of you because they probably have heard. They're like, Oh, we got the preacher up on the soapbox today. Pretty much. Um, pretty much. But just one of those episodes though, that I do think is very important. And I, I do want us to kind of unpack this a little bit more. And we, we do have to help organizations move from this is your job or this is your career to connecting it with something that matters. Now, listen, if you're in a company that has a purpose or a mission, I think it's a little bit easier. You're on a farm. You know, you guys have a mission to feed people, to keep them healthy, to provide for families. You know, when you can, you know, convey that uh, mission and purpose out, I think some people that resonates with them. Yes. I, I think so too, right? It, it's a matter of getting that mission right. You know, you, you look at a lot of quote unquote mission statements out there nowadays, and a lot of them are, are about maximizing shareholder value and, you know, increasing profits, this and the other. Is that important? Absolutely. There's no doubt it's important, but is that the driver behind what we're really trying to accomplish here? And that's where I think many organizations 
need to, you know, need help with that. They need help in making sure that they're aligning with their employees because right now they aren't. If, if you go to a person who's working on the floor and, and you ask them, you know, what are you doing to maximize shareholder value? Do you think they're going to feel like their, their job matters? Do you think they're going to feel that what they're doing is helping the overall globe and the world and what we're trying to accomplish? I think it's clear. The answer is no, they won't. So we have to make sure that, that as leaders, we are helping the team understand their role in the organization, but also the organization's role in the greater community and the world. So how do you begin to tie what the workers, the staff are doing to their, to their goal? Is there, are there some steps? Are there workshops or is this just a, kind of a, a one-on-one thing you do in uh, personal reviews? What's, what's the way that we can kind of practically go about doing this? You know, that, that's the hard thing. How, how do you go well, about Just open up the book of Hiram, chapter two. Let's go. Chapter. Results. How to do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you zero. never should have said the book of Hiram. I mean, I'm just going to tell you. I know, right? Uh, you know, I, and I'm not going to edit that out. I'm going to have to own that one. Um, <laughs> I think it's all-encompassing. As a leader, first and foremost, you need to live it. You need to have integrity with your team members and they need to understand that you truly believe in what you're doing. That's fundamental to having anybody understand what you're doing, whether that be in business or in life or anything else. So you need them to know that you believe that's huge, but you also need to make sure that it's, it's intertwined in, all of your conversations, whether it be one-on-one, whether it be in a small team meeting, whether it be in a company-wide meeting, meeting, sorry, you need to make sure that you're repeating it often and that your actions, you know, it's almost like those, those OKRs that have become popular, right? What's your objective? What is your overall mission. And if it's to be, well, what does OKR stand for? Just so people who oh, may not know, uh, objective and key results. So, you know, it's another way of, of KPI formations of stuff of that nature, key performance indicators. So, you know, you have this overarching vision or, or mission or your goal, everything needs to roll up into it. It needs to focus on achieving that goal. And if it's to provide, an end-to-end beef solution, you know, farm-to-plate beef solution for consumers and for our customers, then everything we're doing needs to roll up into that and into that sustainability, that transparency, and everything we're talking about. That's what I think. So it's much, much, much easier said than done. (laughs) All right, so... I've, I've touched on this a few times about the challenges of being a young executive. So here, here you are, you're brimming with ideas, with inspiration, with, I think a, a fantastic message, you know, that you're working to instill in your staff and of course 
you know, you're living it. But now you're in the executive boardroom and now you're kind of managing up. What are the challenges now when you bring these types of ideas into the organization as a whole at the leadership area? Now you've got to influence and try to move the needle with the people that are going to be setting the tone and the culture from the executive level. That's a great question. I believe the most simple way of putting it, you need to have a CEO or an owner or whoever sits at the top of the organization, you need somebody who's willing to, to listen, but also willing to, to lead and know how to, how to make their people feel heard. You got to have that. And I, I can speak from my experience here. We have it at FPL. It's fantastic. So in, in traditional businesses and, and roles that I've had in the past, it's really difficult to speak of this stuff with any type of, of uh, it's not efficiency, but any, any type of, of force, I guess, when you don't have hard metrics behind it. You know what I mean? So in other words, I knew that's where you were going. It's it's a little bit on the softer, fuzzy side. It is, yeah, yeah. It it is totally on the soft side, and that is hard. You can't sell the soft side to to banks. You can't sell it to investors, right? Because today's society doesn't want to see that at that level. So how do you how do you bridge that gap? And again, I'm, I'm just grateful that we have a, an owner that, that understands that piece and wants to adapt with the changing environment. And that's what you need. Yeah. And you're fortunate that you're working within an environment that it's, I don't want to say baked in, but it's there. So you can, um, you can kind of thrive in that environment. The challenge is for people who are listening to this, the other VPs and the other directors that hear this, maybe they're starting to feel it and sense it. And now they want to, you know, kind of live those changes out. And now they've got to try to figure out how to do it upwards. I think there's a, another podcast that I have coming out. And I don't know when it's going to be released, but it's, it's basically – Courageous conversations is what you have to have. And until you as a leader can get to the point where you can have a courageous conversation. And uh, in fact, wait a minute. No, we've already had it. Uh, Nancy Brooks. I have so many uh, podcasts swirling <laughs> around in my head. I'm so sorry. So big shout out um, to Nancy over at Cisco, because that's something that she does very well is having these courageous conversations. And I think you've got to be able to have that with your, with your executive team and look, the mirror, I'm looking in the mirror too. It's, yeah, it's not easy. It's hard, it's hard to go down this path, right? People are going to say, well, that's what, that's what HR does. That that's their job. And I would say that is, just BS. <laughs> it's just BS. Because if, if it's not owned by every department and by every executive in the company, it's not going to work. It has to be fundamental and philosophical to the organization. 
has to be. Yep. Amen. It's got to be decentralized. That is, that is not a command and control type of system. It, it has to be found within the leaders because the people that work in your organization, they obviously respect you. They want to stay and work with you. If you were a horrible boss, a horrible leader within a great organization, you'd be losing people. You'd be having a turnover problem. So clearly it has to happen you know, with the VP, with the directors. Yes. And that's spot on. It has to happen there. And, you know, it, I'm not saying it's easy because it's hard to talk the soft skills, but when you look over time, you look at the case studies for those types of soft skills, they all add up and it all makes sense. Sometimes it's hard to take that leap though. Yeah. I think sometimes when I hear these conversations, I'm still kind of left with, I'm, I'm, I still have my own situation, you know, and I still have to manage through it. So I think there have to be baby steps. And what you were describing about living it, that's something that you discover in servant leadership. It's called referent power. It's you do. There are different types of power that people have. And you actually have, because you're their boss, you actually have that, um, there's another term for that kind of power, but it's not referent power. That's the kind of power that a boss would have over a worker. They know, you know, if you're unhappy with them, eventually you could have them fired. So they, you know, they, they respect that power, but that may not be enough for them to change something fundamental in their heart and their mind. When you live a principle now you're living through a referent power. When they see that, that, ultimately you want them to be able to kind of run through a wall or step up, you know, during a very challenging time and do more because they see you right there with them. Absolutely. No, I think I think that's a great way of, of saying it. The referent power is, is important and it's there's two sides of it, right? There's managing up, I guess three sides, managing across and managing down. And I don't like those directional, you know, connotations just because they have negative meanings at times. But what I do believe is you as a leader, you have a solemn responsibility, a duty to help your team buy into the vision and you cannot do that if they do not respect you. You cannot do it if they don't respect you. Sure, they might do tasks that you tell them to do, and and you have the power to, to fire them or hire somebody else. Yeah, we get it. But the goal is you want the team to – you, you got to have them want to follow what the organization is trying to accomplish. And that is where real power comes from. That's where real influence comes from when they want to do what's right for the organization because it's within their, their, I don't want to say morals, but it, it tugs on their heartstrings and they want it to succeed. You said something earlier and I've been reflecting on it and it might be literally as easy as just listening to your employees and you you said it you said they just need to be heard and i had another guest on 
and he was describing there was uh, a change that they wanted to make within the restaurant. And this gentleman's over all the restaurants, you know, lots of them. And instead of, for example, deciding, okay, all the new servers are going to wear this apron or this, you know, set of khakis or Oxford, whatever the, the look was, they allowed the, the team, the staff, to help design it and to look at the fabrics. And they ended up picking something that they liked. And everyone was on board. Now, that's that doesn't sound like that hard, does it? I mean, doesn't that sound like kind of like, doesn't that sound like common sense? Like you're going to be wearing this and working every day. Shouldn't, shouldn't you have some input? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't mean to oversimplify, but sometimes that's my gift. I can, I, I, I just oversimplify it. And I, that might be the big takeaway here for people listening to this kind of wanting us to come to some kind of resolution if you're the leader, you need to make sure that you're listening to your people. Because I can tell you, if they want something and you're resistant to it, maybe you need to think of metrics. Maybe you need to think of a system that you can put in place that will allow them to get what they want, but you also get what you want. So now suddenly everything is being fulfilled. Hmm. You know, what am I missing? You're, you're not missing anything. What The only thing maybe you're missing is the effort that goes into it, right? Um, and not that you're missing Well, that's it, why it's called an oversimplification. That's why it's called an oversimplification. <laughs> chapter four, oversimplifying. Yeah. I believe that that people want to be heard. It's not listening. Listening, I mean, we can say listening, but it goes beyond that. And I know we, we talked about it previously in this conversation, but I like to think of it as empathic listening or, or empathetic listening, however you want to say that. But Well, this is one of your superpowers, so I think we ought to just transition into that because I think we've um, I, I think we've resolved as much as we're going to resolve in that other topic. No, absolutely. And, you know, we talked about it, and you've mentioned a couple times on, on this podcast, uh, you know, today that, that what makes, quote, unquote, these young executives – successful how do they succeed and you think about our our industry and our industry is is definitely an aging industry in the ag world the beef packing industry and in all the teams that that i've had the the opportunity to lead every time there were plenty of people that were much senior to me and had all the experience in the world and had every right to not listen to me, right? Because they had lived through it and they had done it. Yes, I was the boss, but they knew they knew how things ran. And if I came in as a as a young buck trying to change everything at once, if I came in and said, "Wow, all of this that we're doing is so wrong. This is what's right, and we need to do it," even if it is correct. And I, and I need to say, even if that is the correct way to do things, it will fall flat on its face. And if it doesn't, you'll have turnover through, through the roof. And so in those instances, the most important for the most important thing for me to do is to let them know that I have heard them, not, not that I listened to them, but 
actually let them know that I've heard them. And there's a lot that goes into it. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of books out there, great books out there on, on influence and how to understand, you know, when your, your team member feels heard. And I think it's important to study those things because once they know that you have heard them, you've heard their arguments, you've heard their justification, you've heard their personal story, you've heard those things in their life that are happening. Once they know that, they will trust you. And even if you decide to do something that is against what they think is correct, they will know at that point where you stand. And if that's the case, they are willing to follow. All right. So can you give us the short kind of cliff notes on how the worker knows they've been heard? What or how do you do it? You know, it's, I've had to work on this a lot, um, a lot. In fact, that's probably the thing I've, I've worked on one of the most. And a lot of it comes through repetition of what they're saying, right? Um, not that you're mirroring, you're not trying to manipulate people. And I think that's where, where sometimes it gets a bad connotation. You're not trying to manipulate, you're trying to influence. You want them to know you've heard them in order for you to really know if you if you heard them or they know that you heard them, you need to paraphrase it back to them and make sure that they say, yes, that is how I feel, or yes, that is what I believe is the right process. If you can get to that point where they say, oh, yes, that's how I feel, then you know you're there. Would you ask a follow-up question to really drive it home? Again, not in a way to manipulate, but to really make sure that you understand where they're coming from. In other words, we use the five whys as a method to uncover your own motives or to help someone else uncover their own motives. You could really use it in the same way. They may say something that they want, right? And maybe you ask a series of follow-up questions. Why do you want to do it like that? Why is that important to you? I, I think that's insightful. Yes, I, I would agree with that because what you need them to do is to really have confidence that you know what, what you just said. And so one of the best things I think is when you try to paraphrase and you get it wrong and when you get it wrong, they correct you. That's when you know that you're having that heart to heart dialogue and you can really get it right. So then you push a little further and you ask, well, why do you believe this way? And, and what do we need to do to help, you know, this thing get better? You really then start opening the communication from just hearing and, and speaking to the heart. And then you're saying, even if you want to go in a different direction, because they've had their voice heard, you find that they'll still follow you. I find that more often than not, they are willing to follow. They still might think you are dead nuts wrong, wrong. <laughs> but at least they feel that they've been heard and they believe that you as a leader are, are making the right decision or they trust in that, that decision. At least that's, that's been my experience.
I mean, there is no silver bullet, but these are just some practical steps that that you can take. Yes, that exactly. There's no silver bullet. It's made of, you know, nothing really is nowadays, but um, that is one of the things that will help endear your hearts to the hearts of your team members. And again, I know we're getting into really soft stuff here, but (laughs) that is what helps influence. That is what helps you grow together as an organization. And then you achieve true unity and not just unity that uh, everyone talks about. Well, but I think through this conversation, you're really showing how the younger crop of executives, you know, are leading. And I, you didn't actually, well, I, I guess you did touch on it. And this is obviously something that young executives have to deal with is that, you, that you're managing people who are older than you. And yes. what you, you, and it just kind of occurred to me that this is what you do to help the older worker become comfortable with you. Yeah, I I think that's spot on, right? It's easy. If you're, if you're a young executive and you're working with a young team, it's much easier to get them to buy in. It's much easier because they don't have as much experience as you do. So they might as well follow. But when you have when you have individuals that have seen market trends, you know, that continue to happen, that have lived through some of the hardest times in the industry and who have seen some of the hardest things, whether it be through, you know, a business selling to another business or a merger, you know, getting them to work with you and really believe in you, that's the hard thing. That's the hardest thing in my opinion. Yeah, because if you don't, you know, when you're not around, those people could become a poison. And I'm not talking about people at your company. I'm now. I'm just saying, sure, sure. In, yeah, in, in, in theory, that that's what happens. And you can't have that that toxic environment. And you all know when you've got someone like that on staff. Um, yes, <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it's it's so detrimental. Particularly if they're not a connected individual, that's a term that I I had to unfortunately learn. I th- I'm I'm what you would call a connected individual. So when I my feelings pretty much match my face. So if something something's not right, you know you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand something's going on with me. But then you've got these people who are unconnected or disconnected, and they and I'm telling you they can fool you. They can really fool uh, yes. you. And if you're if you're dealing with some of these people who are disconnected and they're older and you're trying to manage them, they can put a face on, they can tell you that, you know, then behind your back, this poison is spread and suddenly you've got discontent and people aren't working. So that's a little side note, you know. Um, but it sounds like you it sounds like your superpower of self awareness and this, you know, empathetic listening has really enabled you to bring all those people together, you know, and, and to unify them. It, it just brings trust. It, people want to belong. People want to belong to something greater than themselves. And all we need to do as leaders is give them the reason to want that. Give them the reason to believe that they can. That's what we have to do.
Yeah, and I think through all this, I think you really have, I think you've been helping uh, hiring leaders. I know that's kind of our final topic. I know we're getting kind of close on time, but do you, do you have any final thoughts? I know that was one of the area that we were going to touch on, the talent discussion. I think we've kind of indirectly or even directly have been handling that. Is there something else you want to try to add to that discussion of helping a hiring leader? You know, helping a hiring leader – Hiring leaders are, are one of the hardest roles that you can play out there because it it is so important to get the individual right. And like you said, some of them, many of them can be chameleons. I think it's it's about the it's about the experience. And if you can have a, a longer energy type um, process with an individual and seeing how they react in a, in a restaurant and seeing how they react with, you know, the receptionist and seeing how they react with people that they don't believe they owe anything to because they're not interviewing them. I think that's a big sign. Oh my gosh. I have to tell you, you just drew up a memory and I, I have to throw it out there. You may not have – this was a, a reality TV show long ago. Uh, Richard Branson had a, a reality TV show. Do you, I, I don't remember the name of it. Do you, ever, do you even recall this? He had Sarah Blakely on it. Does that even ring a bell? Yes, I think so, but I can't think of it right now. I couldn't think of the – I can't think of the name of it, but long story short – Sarah Blakely, she is now the CEO, everyone knows, of Spanx, you know, hugely successful. And she was on the show. And they had like 20 other contestants. And they all flew, I want to say, to London. And they had all these different taxi drivers and people coming to pick them up. Or maybe there was only one taxi driver from one car, and he would just kind of shuttle people into the castle and they all got to meet Richard as this kind of big deal. And the winner of the, of the program or the, or the reality show was going to like be an intern with him. And Sarah was, and Sarah was one of these and it was kind of fascinating. And so my wife and I, we watched this and I'll never forget one of the first people that got cut from the program. He was a real, I guess he was a, just frankly, he was an ass to to the cab driver and the cab driver it was his job just to pick up the luggage put it in the car and drive him to the castle so come to find out you want to take a guess who the cab driver was <laughs> the one making the decision unbelievably they transformed richard branson into this old cab driver guy and so he sat in the car and listened to all the conversations people were having. He witnessed how these people were treating him. And he was just this lowly cab driver. And believe it or not, he comes out as the cab driver, strips off his disguise, and he fires that guy right on the spot. You know? I mean, I know that was a long-winded way. I'm kind of a storyteller. But, man, I'll never forget that. But that's the truth. If you can see how people react in different situations, that's why even even our, our interviewing process needs to be experiential, 
right? It shouldn't just be, okay, you have the qualifications, check. You have, you know, you're obviously good with numbers, check. You know, you know this, check. You got to make sure that they are a fit with your culture. And you cannot do that if you don't see them react in different situations, again, with people that they deem unimportant to the process. That is a huge opportunity, I think, for for industries today. It's getting the people that are polite, the people that are very aggressive maybe, but in a good way. They want to be aggressive because they want to get results. They don't want to be aggressive so they can, um, you know, be mean to others, so they can turn people off, so they can do that. There, those people exist out there. And I'll tell you, if you can get those people, when you find them, even if they're not a fit for that role, you need to figure out where you're going to put them in the work. You need to figure it out. I wrote that down. I mean, that is just perfect. You need to see them react, especially with the people they deem unimportant to the hiring process. That's fantastic. And that is great advice for a hiring leader. And of course, it's up to all of us now to figure out how to implement that and make that kind of a practical reality in our own hiring practice. This has been fantastic, Hiram. I wasn't sure we were going to go this deep on some of the soft stuff, but I got to tell you, I think... Once I kind of kind of got to the end of it, I realized maybe I'm just slow. <laughs> I think I just figured it out. That's I mean, this is your superpower. I mean, this is how you've managed to work with you know all these different people, all these different ages, is because you employ these listening skills. And I hope everyone stuck through it because I think now they're going to see the light bulb. You know, that's how you do it. And um, a great session, I think, for those young executives out there. And frankly, the last comment obviously is great for all hiring leaders. But I really think especially um, great advice, you know, for those, you know, 20-something, 30-something-year-olds that are, you know, moving up the chains. And, you know, you got some young VPs out there that, you're going to be managing people who are 40 and 50 years old. Oh, yeah. And 60 and 70 sometimes. I was getting ready to say that. Wow. It's true. That's true. That's yeah. true. No, I, and I very much appreciate you having me on your podcast and talking about this stuff. If you can't tell, I'm I am very passionate about, about this stuff. I'm very passionate about teaching it to my children, teaching it to, to anyone that will listen. And I think it's just... It's that important. We need to make sure that our organizations don't lose our humanity. That is the most important thing. And we see it every day on the news. We see it everywhere in society. We need to change that. We need to don't, we need to make sure that we are leading with empathy and that we don't lose our humanity. That's right. We're, I think the country is going through an awakening right now on, a, on multiple fronts. So I think this conversation kind of ties into that overall kind of mood or culture, I guess, if you will, you know, of the period that we're in. Um, so 
That's fantastic. I appreciate your you know, taking time out of your busy day to to come and share your your knowledge with us and kind of your your, your management leadership style. It's been great. Hiram, really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here today on the Winning to Work podcast. Thank you, and thank you, listeners. Appreciate it.